Southern Skies. Online Media. This episode of Plane Crazy Down Under is brought to you by Jet Ride Australia. Be a top gun for the day in a Soviet-era L-39 jet. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU for the fastest ride in the country. And Oz Runways, Australia's most cost-effective electronic flight bag for iPhone and iPad. Get a free one-month trial today at ozrunways.com. Well, good day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, episode 96 of the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view. I'm Steve Vischer, welcoming you to this very special episode and welcoming you, Grant McHeron. Hey, mate, how you doing? I'm very well, mate, and very much looking forward to this episode. Yeah, mate, it's been a good one. We've been uh, organising it for a little while, and then uh, and I think you pretty much fast-tracked the edit, didn't you, mate? Well, as fast-tracked as editing gets, mate. <laughs> okay, so for this episode, uh, as we alluded to in our last show, we've recorded an episode with a former Royal Australian Air Force fighter pilot who goes by the name of Mac Tucker, or Serge for short. Now, Serge, of course, was his call sign. It's a wonderful interview. It goes for just over an hour. And uh, Grant, he's got a lot to say in there, some things that are uh, interesting, some things that are humorous, some things that some people might find controversial. But uh, boy, I tell you what, uh, one of the best chats that we've had uh, for a very long time, I think. Uh, Definitely a lot to think about with it and uh, a lot of fun too. Absolutely. Now, Serge, uh, in addition to being a uh, a fighter pilot, was also a fighter combat instructor and uh, right up there in the top echelons of uh, Australia's uh, aviation elite. He's released a book, it's called Fighter Pilot, Misadventures Beyond the Sand Barrier with an Australian Top Gun. Now, as I said, the interview goes for just over one hour and we'll run it right through without a break, so uh, strap yourself in, folks. I know you'll enjoy this one. Joining us on the line is Mac Serge Tucker. Serge, welcome to the show. Hey guys, how are you? I'm very good. Now, uh, a fantastic book. I tell you what, mate, I haven't laughed uh, so much in years, and that was only when I read the glossary of acronyms right at the start of this book. The GOAT. The GOAT. Glossary of acronyms and terms. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I appreciate the feedback. Now, that's, it says here at the it. start here, when I, want to, when I grow up, I want to be a fighter pilot, and according to your dad, unfortunately, son, you can't do both. Yeah, I think that's, uh, I think that's fairly true for most knuckleheads I know around the world. I mean, there's a certain passion drive enthusiasm and and it is a childlike enthusiasm that you know they're born with and that there's guys i know that are still 60 you know the world war ii guys yeah. that i've had beers with they still have that spark in their eye and that enthusiasm and you'll see a side of them where you swear they're just five-year-olds yeah. and um they're boys trapped in men's bodies <laughs> put it that way yeah they just want to get out there and have fun and impress the girls and drink some beer and have parties oh well i mean that goes on after hours but uh, it is a very much a um full-time commitment, you know, Monday to Friday and a fair bit of weekend, but uh, it's not a burden in any way. You know, the guys love the job and to be on a Sunday sitting there and swatting up on the manuals prior to a fight on Monday is you know, very regular and it's it's not seen as a burden at all. You talk about uh, early on in the book there about people's view, I guess, and for those of us that grew up through the 80s, we, you know, and particularly if you're an aviation nut like Grant and I, you know, everybody talks about Top Gun and the, I, I guess, what I would consider to be a, a false view of what a fighter pilot can be. I mean, we've dealt with many fighter pilots over the years on this show. You know, I, I get a view when I deal with them in real life of someone who's very focused and highly professional. Um, but then again, now you've lived that lifestyle, so what, what would your overall summation be of your average RAF fighter pilot? I would say that they are highly motivated, uh, semi-intelligent Monday to Friday, <laughs> generally not so on the weekends. Uh, they have egos that are necessary to fulfil the job. So it's not an ego necessary to run around and say how good they are. In fact, I, I, quite, I find them quite humble about their own 
performance, but it is a belief in themselves, in the squadron and in the, um, in the force as a whole that it can accomplish the job. And I think that's necessary to be able to go out and, you know, perform the sort of manoeuvres and the sort of uh, training expectations that are required on a day-to-day basis and do it with some sort of confidence. So confidence without being cocky about it, I guess, would be a way. I mean, we've had that described to us that way before by others, but, you know, reading the book here, you guys get up to a lot of fun when uh, when it's not business time. Yeah, and I, you know, I, I make no apologies for that. I think that's a bit of a travesty with what's going on with the, you know, the politicisation of the military and, uh, you know, how deep the uh, minister's hands can reach down into the pants of the frontline guys and tell them how to behave. And I... I think it's very difficult to stay focused, you know, 20 hours a day, five days a week, and then expect that to not be released some way or another on a weekend. And and for us, it was very much, you know, Friday nights um, in the bar running essentially an informal lessons learnt of the week of how it went down um, over a few beers. And, yeah, it gets ruckus and there's, you know, particular uh, customs that we live up to and you know, setting newspapers on fire and pianos and, Playing Flight games, suits, so. <laughs> games with with uh, billiard balls and a whole bunch of things that goes on, but that's all part of uh, building the camaraderie and the and the morale that is just so essential to the health of the service and the individuals within it. And of course, here in Australia, I mean, the fighter pilot community it's it's not a big one, is it? It's it's quite quite small by I guess by world standards. Yeah, it is, Steve. Um, you've got roughly twelve guys per operational squadron. We have three of them. That's thirty six. Uh, you then got the training unit, number two operational conversion unit at Williamtown, put another dozen in there. And then we've got some uh, fighter pilots on staff working in, uh, you know, flying the brown bombers, as I describe it. Um, so you've probably got about 60 uh, fighter pilots at any one time uh, in Australia with a 48 of them flying and the, the others sitting behind desks. So it is a very small community. So, yeah, with it being such a small crew, you pretty much know everyone, don't you? Yeah, very much so. And, and you know, the degree to which you know them is beyond just any sort of normal work colleague. I mean, since leaving the Air Force, I've worked in commercial airlines, commercial consultancies, other government organisations. And uh, I would have to say that the camaraderie and that brotherhood relationship that develops in the fighter community is, is very unique. So it is a small community, but also what you ask of them is a lot more than, you, you know, your average office job because you're asking them to trust you with their life and uh, they are asking you to trust yourself with their life. And that uh, high level of trust uh, is very well rewarded in that high level of camaraderie. Does that have any bearing on the way you interact with other pilot groups within the forces? <laughs> yeah, yeah <laughs> it, it, it does, Steve. Um, I think I might have mentioned some of those sort of stories in the book. So yes, it is a tight community uh, and it is an elite community and it is a very inwards looking community, which isn't necessarily always healthy. Um, But certainly if you are visiting another base with, you know, maybe a a RAF base Richmond with a bunch of Hercules pilots and you're in the bar, uh, that camaraderie will, you know, come out one way or another by the end of the night. And, you know, sometimes it's physical, sometimes it's um, a, a comic event. In one shape or other, that, uh, that camaraderie always comes out. Now, you, you draw a very funny story about that in the book where you talk about the flyover by, I guess, the flying Elvises as they come into a, a Hercules base and uh, talking about that in terms of the viewpoint of a Hercules pilot. Can you describe how that would be for them? Yeah, I think for most pilots in Australia, you know, they... Uh, start off as kids going to air shows and watching television, reading books and things, and, and fighter flying is is right up there amongst the best thing that you could fly in Australia. And uh, I think I think that would be true for every pilot. And unfortunately for the majority of kids, you know, they can't all get there. Um, fortunately for those that do get there, um, you know, they they're very privileged and and they know it. And um, unfortunately for those who don't, there's often a uh, 
I guess, a unrealised passion or dream, you know, that, that um, unfortunately um, for, for knuckleheads, depending on who it is, can you can come off second, be- second best by telling someone that you fly fighters. And I mean, that even continued on to the airlines and in some of the uh, other government organisations that I've worked in is that, uh, you know, actually admitting to being a fighter pilot can put you in a bad place because of the reputation that they have amongst those that haven't flown them. Um, <laughs> when, it, when in fact it's really just a, you know, it's a very tight-knit group who can be seen as elitist, you know, because they come into a, a Hercules pilot's bar and essentially take it over and wear costume and, um, you know, invade their personal space. And, uh, you know, if they're not uh, understanding of that culture, that, you know, they can be very uh, very anti it for sure. So uh, let's roll back then. You, you've, you've just talked about be- being part of the elite, the the small group of uh, fighter pilots here in the RAAF. How did you get into it? Your book describes it a little bit. Can you summarize getting yourself into that elite group? Yeah, look, I was uh, very motivated and driven towards it by the time I was about 15. Um, up until then, my dad flew. Uh, he flew recreationally, and so I was with him on his knee, you know, flying gliders and light aircraft on his back, flying hang gliders, uh, you know, making models, reading biggles, Reach for the Sky, you know, every World War II fighter pilot yeah. had written something was a hero of mine. So that was a natural progression to finish high school and apply to the Air Force to uh, to fly jets. As soon as I got my um, final year's results, I headed down the recruiting office, um, made my application, and it was a relatively quick process after that and a bunch of testing that I underwent over about a six-month period um, before I was accepted in and, and put onto a pilot's course. Um, so, yeah, look, I was I was very motivated, and that, that was good, I guess, going through high school that I had a goal and it you know, kept me kept my head down and bum up and made sure I um, got the necessary marks, which I, I might add are not necessarily that high, uh, and a lot of people are surprised by that, but to um, be a pilot in the Air Force, you've really just got to achieve solid grades, mid-grades, and um, it's more about your attitude than your academic mm. ability. So you got in, uh, you went through uh, basic training in the CT4, didn't you, the, the Parrot? Yeah, and I loved, loved it then and I still love that aircraft and I, I try to get into it as much as I can. It's just a, a great training machine and it's a great all-rounder for decent cross-country performance as well as aerobatics, as well as uh, docile handling and uh, really loved my time in the Parrot and started to really you know, find my feet as a young 17-year-old going into the Air Force I had very little confidence and I came from quite a sort of protected home, uh, sheltered life. So, you know, going into this big wide world of the military and then, you know, after three hours on the parrot, you know, you're heading off solo and uh, wow. really felt out of my depth. And um, I very soon, very soon though, within months, you know, started to realise that actually I could fly this thing and not kill myself or turn it into a ball of fire and um, started to build a bit of confidence in myself. But it was very a very slow process and honestly lasted about 10 years before I had confidence in myself and my piloting ability. And that, that was uh, right through because it was that 10 years you were in F-18s and a fighter combat instructor by then, weren't you? Yeah, and it was. It, was, it wasn't until I was instructing on, F- on F-18s that I started to um, believe in my, my piloting abilities, that I was good enough to make the grade and um, yep. Yep, be up there with the, the um, best of the best guys that we had in Australia. Until then, there was just a constant psychological battle within my own mind of, you know, that I felt very underconfident and that I was somehow faking it or handing it up or wasn't good enough. And uh, I think that's quite common in the high achievers. None of them feel comfortable at that level, and that's why they're there at that level because they never feel comfortable. They're always striving to do better than what they are doing. Yeah, because they, they think that uh, they've got there by accident and now they've got to prove that, well, actually they're here properly and, well, really they should be getting higher, that kind of thing. 
Yeah, exactly. And and you know, if 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 today they got a hundred rounds on the banner doing air to air gunnery, well, that's not good enough. Yeah. Tomorrow it's got to be 110, and the next day it's got to be 120. So it's just a constant application for self improvement, and uh, I think that's pretty much common trade across uh, most knuckleheads. It's it can also be common amongst another, a number of other pilots that I've met who, while not knuckleheads, they you know some of them are, are flying you know lighties and things like that, but they're always they're always looking like they're shooting an ILS. Well, they're always trying to make it a perfect shot, or you know they're doing partaking in some of the games like flower bombing or um, circuit heights without instruments, all those kind of things. I've, I've found a lot of the guys they're really focused on just improving themselves, not just going out for a hit and a giggle like you might at a game of golf. They're they're, they're the ones who are out there really playing the golf and trying to get better at it, that kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely, Grant. I um that uh, constant drive actually is something that's innate in their nature. You see it in their profession as far as flying F-18s, but if you were to then go with them on the weekend and watch how they surf or watch how they play golf or whatever that is, they have a personality that's, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like an OCD in a sense, <laughs> a minor, minor version of it that they just want to um, do the best they can and they'll, you know, they'll apply themselves almost in an unhealthy way to, to do it. Now, you've mentioned about how much you love the CT4 and you've gone through, you've flown, um, I believe it was the Mackie was your next level. Yep, before you that got was it. The 18s, yep. yep. You, you were during that time before they uh, brought in the um, the PC9. Yes. Uh, how'd you find the Mackie? I really liked that. So when I, I talk about the CT4 favorably because it was a, a great you know, beginner's aircraft, an all-rounder, uh, stepping up to the Mackie, I think I enjoyed that just as much um, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it because of its handling qualities. So it was a a true Italian sports car, like a Ferrari. It was just beautiful to fly. Uh, you could fly it with two fingers at uh, you know very high performance, and it was uh, a stable platform for formation. Uh, you could do some tremendous aerobatics in it, things like uh, you know stall turns and hammerheads and all of those sort of things in a jet-powered aircraft. Wow. Uh, really, really enjoyed that um, machine. Very violent, you know, rapid spins, and um, yeah, a, a really great, robust, strong aircraft. Unfortunately, I lost a... A friend at uh, 76 Squadron um, a few years after my pilot's course, uh, Russ Page, um, his wing snapped off in flight and he tried to eject and uh, the wing was on, essentially on top of the aircraft when he ejected and um, he died. Um, and there was a couple of other ejections on the You know, it, it wasn't an aircraft without troubles. Uh, you know, it's a high-speed aircraft and the uh, RAF learned a lot along the way about how to manage that machine. And uh, on the wing issue, there was some errors made in reconnecting the wings after a, um, a wing structural refurbishment program and that, that was the uh, cause of Russ's wing falling off. But, you know, other than those sort of engineering issues, that the basic piloting of that machine, it was a tremendous aircraft to fly. It's interesting there, Serge, that you talk about uh, the problems with the Mackie. And I guess, although it sounds to me like you're always focused on fighters, uh, when you got through pilot's course, you actually ended up in another aircraft that uh, certainly had its uh, share of troubles, which was the uh, the Nomad. Yeah, the Gonad, as I used to call it. <laughs> yeah, the, uh, okay, so I got posted there uh, off pilot's course. I I had the flying skills, but I, I lacked the maturity to go to fighters. Um, and I was a very green, young, uh, 18-year-old when I finished pilot, uh, 19-year-old I was when I finished pilot's course. So the Air Force, in its wisdom, said, well, we'll send him off to Nomads because you can go to a crewed aircraft where a captain can watch him and he can develop his maturity along the way. And I found myself 
sent off to 75 Squadron, which had F-18s and had two Nomads, which were flown single pilot IFR in the tropics day and night with 16 VIPs on board. So it probably was the exact opposite of what the um, two FDS thought they'd do when they sent me to a crewed aircraft. We, they, the Air Force didn't operate them crewed. But that was great in a sense that I was thrown in the deep end. I was sent off uh, for training and the week before I was due to start my training, my instructor's tail fell off down in Adelaide. Uh, it was Dono uh, and he, he died, unfortunately. Um, so the Air Force nomads were grounded. I was sent to the Army where I did my aircraft endorsement and some operational flying with those guys for nine months. And that was that was a fantastic um, experience. I really learned to appreciate Army aviation and what it meant to be supporting troops on the ground uh, during that nine months. I then went back to uh, 75 Squadron to fly the uh, the commuter N24, which was the stretched version, and um, flew that for about 18 months before we had our own incident, and that was the uh, one of the flapperons snapped in flight, set up a very violent oscillation of airflow across the tail. The aircraft was going between plus and minus 4G, which isn't really good for a commuter aircraft, <laughs> and we, uh, we essentially landed along on the runway, took the overrun, was able to taxi it back, and uh, we found that both engines were uh, held on by only one engine mount. There was a crease in the upper wing of the skin. The flap run was hanging off and there was significant structural damage. And the estimates were there was only seconds remaining for the aircraft to uh, before it fell, off, fell apart in flight. So that was quite a, a close call for us. And that was the last flight of the Nomad and the Royal Australian Air Force. They got rid of them all after that. I think they sold them in, to uh, Indonesia. Lucky them. <laughs> And you're, you're aware that um, Gipsero have bought the rights to the Nomad and are looking at uh, rebuilding it. Have you followed what they're doing with it to um, avoid these kind of problems? I don't know the technical details, Grant, but I am aware of the, the program. And I, I think it's look, I think the Nomad is a great aircraft from a spec perspective. If you look at the payload range, performance, short field, uh, its uh, volumetric capabilities and things like that. It's a, it's a great light transport aircraft, and there's you know there's nothing else out there. The King Air is what sort of replaced it and does a pretty poor job of replacing a Nomad. Now the issue was just one of uh, you know the engineering behind it. I think if they can rectify some of those issues, it still stands to there's nothing else there out there at the moment that I think would uh, replace it. A lot of the aircraft that are in that kind of area are either. They were long gone or just being rebuilt as well, similar to the uh, the Viking uh, rebuild of the Twin Otter. Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably the closest match would be the Twin Otter and the and the Nomad. And uh, I have not flown the uh, the Twin Otter, so I can't comment on a you know comparable performance. But when you saw the uh, short N twenty two Nomad in a real style aggressive takeoff and what it could do, I'd be pretty surprised if a um, Twin Otter could match it. Yeah, I've seen some video of them in action. They're pretty impressive. Well, we used to do, um, when we had the appropriate approvals, we used to do um, sub-VMCA takeoffs for the short field. So that means if you lose an engine, you're going in. Now, you would only do them on very short fields and with the appropriate approvals and things like that. But normally, with your normal V1, V2, VMCA pathway in an aircraft, you know, a multi-engine aircraft takeoff, you'd never think of getting airborne before you can fly on one, one engine. Well, on the short field stuff in the Nomad, with the army, we used to practice and, and do that for real, and um, pretty tense few seconds until you got through VMCA. But what you could do was very was very impressive in the machine. Serge, I'd like to talk about a concept that's uh, quite a central theme in the book there, and that's one of mentoring and mentors. Um, and an early one for you was Ross Fox. Can you tell us a bit about Ross Fox? Yeah, sure, Steve. Uh, look, Ross. Ross Fox was a, you know, he was one of the penultimate golden boys of the fighter force. Um, he had a, a real golden career. Uh, when I met him, he was the he was the executive officer, I think, of number two OCU, uh, the 
training squadron, the F-18s. I was a young 15-year-old at the East Sale Air Show, and the F-18s were brand new. Um, they'd only been in the country a couple of years. I went up and met him after the uh, air display that they'd put on, and he was just a, a really great guy. And, he, you know, there was a 15-year-old annoying him at an air show, and having been on the other side <laughs> of the fence, I know what that feels like. And he had the time of day to... to you know, literally continued to talk to me until everyone else had gone home from the show. And I think, you know, it might have been out of just I'd whittled him down to such an extent that he just gave in and said, all right, look, I can't keep talking to you, but you need to come up to Williamtown. But he ended up inviting me up to uh, the fighter base at Newcastle. And um, I did a week's work experience up there as a year 11 student. And that was a tremendous week. And he uh, organized a great week of me doing everything other than flying an F-18. But I, I was able to spend time in the hangar assisting on the maintenance. I was able to spend time in the tower uh, learning the air traffic side with the ground controlled intercept office, officers uh, intercepting the aircraft towards each other. Um, on Learjets, conducting intercepts against F-18s in the simulator, training on the F-18 simulator. And wow. um, it, was a, it was a tremendous week for a young kid who was, you know, very uh, motivated. And that really cemented in me the year before my final year of school. So my final year of school was pretty much spent, you know, head down, bum up. And uh, that was, you know, to, for me to get the marks I got was really a lot of work. I wasn't a naturally gifted student at all, but I was able to work hard enough to get there. And I, I owed all of that to uh, to Ross Fox and that week he spent with me. And when I was posted to No Man's on my first uh, operational squadron, it was back to 75 squadron, and he was my uh, CO at the time. And uh, so it had been about, I guess, five years since I'd seen him and I'd managed to get myself to a fighter squadron, although albeit on the Nomad, and uh, working for him. And he was very instrumental in uh, mentoring me and steering me towards fighters, even though I was on uh, Nomads. Um, there was, you know, attitudinal adjustments that I needed and things like that. And uh, the CEO did a, did a um, the best he could in the first month I was there because it was shortly after I arrived, he had an aircraft accident and died by the mid-air collision on the F-18. And I had maintained you know, communications with Ross for those five years and to finally get to his squadron and, and be getting uh, steered in the right direction towards fighters and then him dying was a, was a real blow because he was, a, a, you know, he was a mentor. He was larger than life to this little 15-year-old and pretty much had a lot to do with me getting to where I was. Do you think uh, way back then that first time he came across you, and I can identify with being the 15-year-old, uh, you know, kid on the other side of the fence. I mean, I think <laughs> I'm the 41-year-old kid on the side of the fence now, but do you think even back, you think even back then he, he saw something in you and that's, I mean, t- to get work experience as you've described, would be unique, I would imagine. Yeah, look, it, it is fairly unique. And I, when I was on F-18s, I did it for two teenagers that had independently approached me. And one of them I knew at the time would never make it. He just wasn't motivated enough. And I think it was more about his parents saying, you need to go and do work experience. And the other one made it into aviation. I don't think he got to fighters, but I believe he got into the Air Force. And I continued that right through until after uh, I left the Air Force where I was conducting some ad hoc uh, sort of motivational training and talking and things like that to kids that were interested in the Air Force. And I, I had one student there, uh, took him up in a CT4, gave him some lectures, did a couple of trips with him on the basics of um, what the Air Force would be looking for. And I was just so wrapped when I when the book was published, he contacted me and, and said that he was a flight lieutenant at um, 3 Squadron flying F-18s and um, that, I'd, that I'd had a lot to do with motivating him towards uh, getting there. So, yeah, you know, what goes around comes around, I guess. I guess later in your career, uh, moving on into FCI, I guess mentoring, uh, you know, within the RAF itself would become a, a very important part of your role then. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, and it's very, very instilled in the fighter community. So, uh, and there's a, you know, there's a whole culture there that's quite unique. Um, I guess the best way to explain it would be in a debrief, a large uh, force employment exercise might involve 
say five squadrons and in, a, in one of those large sort of pitch black um, debriefs you know at the cinema the base cinema you might have 50 pilots in that one room from multinational forces you know all around the world and lots of different squadrons lots of different types and in that room for that debrief you might have an air commodore as a senior ranking air force officer and uh, we rarely have pilot officer fighter pilots because generally the training regime on Mackies or, or Hawks now um, is just a little bit too long for pilot officers, the most junior officer rank, to get to fighters. But occasionally we get them through. And you can have everyone there from a one-star Air Commodore down to a pilot officer in that one room. And for that, you know, one, two, three, five-hour debrief, however long it takes, uh, everyone is treated equal. And so whilst there's an Air Commodore there uh, who is the senior ranking officer, he, for that debrief, he is, you know, Warlock 4 is his call sign. And Warlock 4, why did you not get the shot into the bandits? Warlock 4, why did and you get your bombs off Warlock for you know you're a bit of a shit fight um, and that's that's how that air commodore and that air commodore will sit there and take it from the pilot officer on the chin and say yep I need to improve this this and this and then break go to the bar and then back at the bar he's sir yes sir no sir and the pilot officer is saluting him it's a very unique culture where everyone is uh, we call it a, a nameless rankless debrief and that part and that mentoring is, is also an important part of the culture in the sense that um, the senior guys need to set the correct example in everything they're doing, whether they're at the bar or whether they're leading the formation or on the wing. And um, it's a, a culture that is very instilled and is, is formally debriefed. In You know, I failed a pilot, did not make it through uh, Hornet course. Um, one of the few guys I, I, I failed, and he failed because of attitude, not because of flying skills. He had the aptitude, he had good hands and feet, and he could have flown that machine, but he probably would have done a really good job of flying that machine into the side of a hill because he just had the wrong attitude. And yeah. uh, that's, that's part of that cultural mentoring where, just like Ross Fox had done with me, I'd been sent to nomads because I had good hands and feet but a bad attitude. And he'd taken me under his wing and said, okay, you need to settle down here. You need to apply yourself here. Put your nose down, bum up, and you know, stop the carry-on. Uh, but go to the bar on the Friday night. You need to let your hair down and you need to behave this way as well. So yeah, very, very important. That cultural development of young kids is something I'm very passionate about and something I'm quite vocal about even today um, and how the politicisation of the force and you know the politicians putting – you know, breaks and regulations on uh, the way commanding officers command their squadron and what that's doing to the actual warfighting capacity of the squadrons. You know, I'm very passionate about that because I, I don't think you can have a bunch of robots um, effectively interact as a strong warfighting unit. You essentially need, you need that uh, human element to be uh, binding them together. Definitely. You've got to really be able to gel, they've got to be able to think on their feet, they've got to be able to work without communications. If they're stuck out there and something's being jammed, it's you've got to have people who can be autonomous, but not like a robot, as you said. It's And, and that means they've got to be human, they've got to blow off steam, and they've got to be recognised to, to have a few moments. Yeah, they, it's exactly right, Grant. And there's a lot of things that I think the fighter force does very, very well. One of the ones I think it does is it teaches guys how to think for themselves. So whilst there is a lot of procedures to start an F-18 and operate it and there's a lot of tactical procedures to shoot missiles and drop bombs uh, and there's a lot of intelligence, et cetera, et cetera, it's the art of war. The, the science of war is how you start an aircraft and how you get it to point A in space. The art of war is how then I am creative with the machine and with the tactics and with my wingman and with the threats, with the sun angle, the cloud, et cetera, to win the fight. And 
teaching guys uh, from a young age how to think for themselves is how you end up with 21-year-old guys running around in $50 million machines very safely. You don't do that by restricting them. You actually give them very long leashes, almost enough to hang themselves, and you mentor and monitor them very closely. But when I say very closely, you're not sitting there going, what are you doing? What are you doing? You're actually sitting there on their wing as an experienced fighter pilot, listening to every radio radio call he makes, watching him on the data link, uh, watching his tactics, and then you're spending a lot of time with him after the flights on the ground and mentoring him. Yeah, you're not uh, micromanaging, you're guiding. Yeah, very little micromanagement, although I think that's one of the negative things going on when I say micromanagement is you now have elected government officials determining tactics. Yeah, uh, and things this like doesn't that. work. No, it's- no. So I, I think, um, but on the positive note is that I still have a lot of confidence in the fighter force's ability to teach very young guys how to think very quickly and on their feet about some very complex and dynamic uh, situations. I guess along those lines, when, we, when we're talking about politics, uh, when it pertains to the military, you do make some reference there when talking about your time spent uh, doing exercises with the Navy and with the Army. Um, there is talk there about the interoperability between the forces, and you seem to allude there that perhaps it's not as good as it could be in some cases. Yeah, look, there's, uh, interoperability is measured over a number of facets. You've got technical interoperability in how we swap zeros and ones you know, between data links, between services and things like that. But ultimately, it comes down to the cultural interoperability of how the people work together because the data links will be made to work together if, the, if each of the um, human elements or what I call the warmware in the system operates properly together. And, uh, the, you know, the cultures are very different. I'm not going to say any particular one's wrong or right, but they have advantages and disadvantages. And, yes, I draw some, some uh, blows at the uh, Army and the Navy, the sister services, because they're the sister services and it's an Air Force book, so it's the author's <laughs> prerogative to, you know, give them a hard time. But, you know, one thing I admire about the Army is it's, it's very good at building human leaders. Um, from a very young age, a fighter pilot is taught how to manage machinery very well, and he is leading, when he is leading, he's leading A-type personalities that don't really need much motivation. You know, they've wanted from a very young age to be there in that F-18 and do a good job. So as far as, you know, the, the carrot and the stick approach to man management, fighter pilots don't really get exposed to it much. It's more about managing a lot of machinery at high speed and very short time frame. On the Army side, they get a much more broader spectrum. They're not all A-types in the Army. You've got A-types and B, C and D-types. And the uh, the managers there are very good at, um, you know, the psychological understanding of other human beings and how to optimise a group of men to achieve a common outcome. Some of our best leaders, I would say, are, are in the Army. And the Navy's strength is, um, I'm not sure. I'm sure it's there, uh, but we very rarely work together in the physical because they're on boats a long way from home. Um, but, I, you know, I, I'm sure, obviously the, the maritime domain is their specialty and I'm sure they do. They've got a, a lot of strengths there, but generally they were on the uh, they were just green dots on the radar scope when we were working with the Australian Navy. There's a good story in there, uh, Serge, about uh, where you were on the bridge trying to explain to a midshipman how he might um, in, improve his, uh, what would you call it, using a, a brevity code to uh, improve his communications. Uh, that didn't go down too well with the uh, officer on the bridge. No, it was, a, it was a young ice maiden. She was a very young <laughs> sub-lieutenant, I think, and it was a training ship. And uh, I was a young lieutenant at the time. And, uh, yeah, when you've got, um, say, 36 fighters on the one frequency all talking about a lot of information because uh, you've got bandits everywhere and you've got surface-to-air threats everywhere and things like that, um, there's a lot of communication that goes on. So we develop a brevity code, which allows you to take all of those complexities and uh, dynamic things that you need to say and pass it in the least amount of syllables as you can. And we literally design the brevity when this when there's a new piece of equipment and we need to talk about it, we'll look for something that's two syllables if possible to talk about. So to give you guys an example of brevity, um, 
the transponder, which in the military is called an IFF, identification of friend or foe, is the code word for that is the parrot. <laughs> um, and the TACAN, which is a piece of navigation equipment by which aircraft can uh, reference each other's position or to a boat, is called your father. And so one of the best pieces of com brevity I ever heard when working with the Navy was, um, you know, Shogun, we need you to strangle your parrot and chop your father. And <laughs> that, you know, that meant to turn off your transponder and, uh, sorry, shine your father, turn off your transponder and turn on your tack end. But all of that com brevity, um, it's not so much about, you know, defeating anyone listening in on frequencies. It's all about minimum com on the radio. And um, the Navy, you know, they're like the other end of the spectrum. You know, they've got six people driving this boat, which is all happening at 10 knots or something. It's not really happening at high speed. And they are chatting away like a bunch of monkeys. And it just, it is, I don't know how they can think on the deck of a boat. <laughs> Honestly, I, I'd, have to, I'd have to leave. It was just, it was, I mean, I was, I was used to an environment where there's you know, 36 fighters on the one frequency and you could all operate highly effectively and kill all the bandits and get home. And we had six people talking about, you know, one boat at the back of the Whit Sundays, and it was just brain draining. Anyway, that was, you know, that's that's how the Navy operates. So I offered some advice on how they could cut down their chatter on the bridge, and uh, I was promptly asked to leave the bridge. <laughs> that didn't go down too well, but I was honestly just trying to help them. Well, have you ever been on the bridge for a uh, shift change? Yes. Reminds me of airline flying. When you have a crew change on airlines, it goes on like that too. It's just phenomenal. I remember my dad saying one time a um, an American um, bridge shift change was handing over, taking over, all very good. And then he was on a, a Kiwi Navy ship and saw one and it was uh, almost like something out of uh, HMAS Bounty. You know, the, the whole sing-song requesting permission, uh, permission granted and all this kind of stuff that went on. It was quite fascinating. Oh, yeah. I, look, I allude to that in the book. It was uh, very eye-opening for me and um, it sort of made me aware of why we were so, so successful against um, multi-axis, multi aircraft high-speed attacks against these ships because, you know, they wouldn't finish the first sentence and you would be overhead with 12 <laughs> laser-guided bombs and they're still trying to talk about the fact they've seen you, you know? Well, that is, a, well, if they see you at all, as per one of the chapters in the book. I should, yeah. I should quote a, a very interesting paragraph from the book here where it says, they like to think that their small, aged, overpriced and strategically irrelevant fleet can use some sort of Klingon cloaking device to defend itself against multiple off-axis, low-level supersonic precision-guided attacks. I guess ignorance is bliss. Hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, um, well, that, that was it because, you know, they were, they're all very convinced that in a shooting match, you know, they'd be here on day 150 of the war when, <laughs> from our perspective, it wasn't going to last more than 150 seconds. Yeah. Well, I guess when we're talking about uh, interoperability of forces, I, I note that you mentioned that, uh, and, and we know this from our dealings uh, with other Defence Force people, that we spend a lot of time doing exchanges uh, with, with the United States uh, forces, the Navy, I guess, with the Hornets and also with the Marine Corps and their Air Force. You know, how, how does it go working with the Americans? I mean, they're such a larger force. I mean, are they fighter pilots similarly motivated do they have similar sorts of attitudes to ours yes i would i would say so. i would say that the u.s fighter pilots have a level of technical knowledge that exceeds the australian fighter pilots and that's because they have such a big outfit that is you know studying and building radars and enemy weapon systems and things like that so you know they come over here and they know just about every electron and what it does in a jet fighter. Their weakness is that it is a big organisation and so, you know, the way they do tactics development is that you know, a manual is set and they must fly tactics according to the manual. So the threat today is an F-16 shooting heat-seeking missiles. Well, this is how we fly against that threat. Australians, on the other hand, you know, they don't, they don't have the technical expertise, I wouldn't say. Uh, they're not far off, but I would say the Americans are higher with technical knowledge. Uh, but they have what I spoke before about that culture of thinking on their feet 
at very high speed and using a lot of, you know, Aussie ingenuity. And we used to see that a lot in the large exercises against the Americans where, you know, they could send in 12 F-15s, uh, C models, the air-to-air models, very capable aircraft at, at very high altitude and shooting very long rockets at us where we were very outgunned and we would we would do better than hold our own against them. Yeah. And, that, and that comes by, you know, uh, saying, okay, we're outgunned, what are we going to do, guys? And we'd come up with tactics and use our knowledge, our li- more limited knowledge, but a much more sort of wily bandit concept of how we could get in around, under and over their radars to, to uh, defeat them. And um, that, that's what I would give the Australian fighter pilot credit for is, is that ability to outthink an adversary. Also, the Yanks have got a huge, huge military. So you have your niche, you have your place, you work in it. The Kiwis and the Aussies don't have that many people. So we've got to, everyone's got to be a bit of a jack of all trades in some areas. Uh, classic story. Once again, my father in, in the US picking up the P3s, they're on a mission and something goes US in the aircraft. They say, oh, that's it. We've got to scrub the mission, go back. And the Kiwis go, hang on, pull the box out, go, oh, there's the problem. Fix the box, put it back in. And the Yanks are all there going, you can't do that. We've got specialists that do that back at home, you know, <laughs> all that kind of stuff. And, and like the Kiwis, coming back from World War II with more F-4 Corsairs and they actually took to war because they go down the end of the runway at night and find two halves and put them back together and have a new aircraft. Yeah, now I, I, certainly I think um, that ability to think laterally outside the box is, is something that yep. you know, puts the Aussies in uh, pretty high set. In fact, when you talk about your father and P-3s, I met a guy at the 50th anniversary of the fighter weapons course at Nellis Air Force Base, um, which is a, the best, it's like the capital city of fighter flying in the world. I mean, it's at Las Vegas, say no more. Yep. <laughs> but it's also just, you know, the highest population of fighter pilots and the most violent bar games you can have. And, I mean, their bar is just a fighter pilot heaven. It's phenomenal. I mean, they've got an ejection seat you can ride into a pool of beer and things like that. It's phenomenal. <laughs> oh, and I was there for the 50th anniversary of the course. So you can imagine this was a big night. Yep. And I met this guy who had flown in Australia on P- P2 Neptunes, predecessor okay. to the P3. Yep. And he recounted to me a wonderful story about how he was flying during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and the missions were so long that they couldn't get there with their normal supply of fuel, which is a lot in a P-2. So oh, yeah. their configuration was eight underwing mines, four on each side, and in the Bombay, the Bali Bombay, was a large longitudinal fuel tank. Uh, next to that was two electric torpedoes, and they needed to carry that fuel bladder to get out to the uh, embargo site. And this guy was telling me how uh, they had the briefing from the operations officer who said, now, listen, you're well over takeoff weight. If you lose an engine, there's no way you can fly on one engine, so just look ahead and crash visually. And he turned <laughs> he turned to his co-pilot um, after start and he said, now, listen, that bullshit about the operations officer about we're throwing this bird away if we lose an engine is just horseshit. What you will do is you will press that button there to jettison the underwing stores, you'll open the Bombay, and you'll jettison the Bombay contents. And the co-pilot said, yeah, no worries, Skipper. Anyway, sure enough, a couple of days into this um, operation – they had an engine failure shortly after takeoff. And he turned to the Coey and said, now jettison the stores. And the Coey jettisoned the underwing stores and he jettisoned the belly stores. And a few seconds later, he started to get a vibration through the airframe, a very low frequency but violent vibration. Boom, 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 coming through the whole airframe. And he just couldn't work out what was going on. And he looked across and he could see that the Coey had failed to open the Bombay, but he had jettisoned the stores. So that the fuel bladder had dropped and burst. The electric torpedoes had dropped into the fuel and fired up and were swimming in the fuel and hitting the front bulkhead, but they couldn't build up enough inertia to set off the inertial fuel, uh, inertial fuse. But they had live torpedoes swimming in fuel in the belly of the Bombay, at which time they, he promptly leant across, opened the Bombay jets in the stores and they got home. But just amazing. And those those old guys, when they tell stories about, you know, the how they approached flight safety and 
the development of flight and everything that we take for granted now with our safety procedures. And, you know, I often remind students of mine now and uh, since I've been instructing that all these procedures that we have in place, you've got a better chance than not that that procedure, blood has been spilt to learn yep. it. So don't you go, you know, trying to uh, not uh, do it. You make sure you follow that procedure because every little procedure, you know, there's a lot of a uh, lot of blood spilt in those in those former years of uh, aviation development to get to where we are at the levels of safety we take for granted now. Well, if you talk about uh, professional development amongst the fighter pilot community and uh, talking about US forces, we've we've spoken over the years, and in fact, uh, there was a highlight in Australian Aviation magazine uh, just this month actually about our pilots going across and flying the F-22 Raptor. How important is that in your mind flying over there on exchange over in, in the US with their forces and particularly with such a high-tech aircraft in terms of air, air force today? I think it's essential Steve in fact um, the previous guy was an old student of mine and um, you know that the wealth of knowledge that they bring back now whilst we have the F-18 and, and we now have the Super Hornet and they're not F-22s um, a lot of the advanced tactics and technologies and things that those guys come back with is the sort of stuff I was just talking to about how the, the Americans have a lot of technology mm. and they have a higher level of technical knowledge and so they bring that back um, to our fighter force and we start to incorporate that knowledge in the tactics in our development and um, is absolutely essential to keep Australia at the cutting edge uh, even though we may not have the most uh, capable fighters on the planet you know compared a super hornet's very good but compared to an f-22 it's a phase in insignificance uh, it's that knowledge of that high-end stuff that allows those super hornets to be employed well above super hornet capability and when yep. we have the, uh, you know, obviously the F-35 is still on the cards, I guess um, that's the ultimate goal when I mean, the F-22 is not coming here. So it has to be the F-35 in the future. Sadly for Australia, I think, is my opinion. But um, <laughs> I, I'm not a big fan of the um, the JSF and I do that uh, purely for kinematics. And, uh, you know, if you go right back to the uh, BE-2 and the Sopwith Camel, everything that we've ever had in the Air Force and you plot a kinematic uh, plot of those about you know, how tight they can turn, their radius, uh, their speed to height, uh, PSAB-S, all the things that are important to fighter flying, you'll see a constant line of advance as we went from box kite to monocoque construction to jet power to forward firing ord- ordnance to radar guided ordnance, you know, at longer missiles. And the whole time there's a truth in warfare that the long sword beats the short sword or the long bow beats the short bow. And in fighter flying, the long bow and the long sword is about kinematics how fast you can get your machine to launch that missile or that bomb. And with the JSF, we've taken, we've actually gone backwards from the current F-18. It it cannot get to the speeds uh, that the F-18 can to deliver a long weapon. So it has stealth, and that's a great capability. But if it is compromised, the stealth, you then rely on kinematics, and it's not going to go well in kinematics. It's the same physical length as an F-16. It's the same wingspan as an F-16. But now I want you to go three times the fuel capacity, add some internal bomb bays, and you've got a flying guppy. And that's why yeah. it's just a, it's a basic physics equation why I'm not a fan of the JSF. Now, we're signed up to it. I know the Aussies will do the best job to incorporate it and, and make it a great capability. But if it ever came to a slinging match between a high-performance aggressor that could climb higher, shoot longer, shoot faster, and our stealth capability was compromised, it would be a really bad fight to be in. Yeah, there are indications that stealth capability has been compromised in some ways. So it's not guaranteed proven, but it's it's going around that uh, the Russians and the Chinese have got radars that will bypass that stealth, apparently. Yeah, well, I, I mean, uh, one of the maxims in warfare is that for every counter, there is a counter-counter. 
So in, in, in IR missiles, for example, the AIM-9 Bravo was first brought out in Vietnam and then they brought out flares to defeat that missile. And then we brought flare rejection technology that could recognise the flares. Then they bring out special flares that can't be rejected. And this, <laughs> yeah. this counter, counter, counter continues on. And that's a, that's a maxim of warfare. Now, to say for the life of the next airframe that Australia buys, which is on average 40 years, we will own the stealth space, I think is a massive oversight on our behalf. And again, what's my basis for saying that is... What brought stealth about was the ability to solve the Maxwell's equations and supercomputers brought that ability about. Well, guess what? We don't own, we're not the only people on the planet with supercomputers anymore. No. In fact, if you look at where computing is developing in the world, it's all developing in Asia. Uh, and, you know, the ability to solve those equations and come up with stealth is no longer our domain. It's a shared domain. So if I have a shared domain, I want to make sure I've got the best kinematic capability. And unfortunately, the JSF, we're going to lose that. I guess a more general saying uh, would go along the lines of uh, the better the mousetrap, the smarter the mice get. Yeah, uh, that's a good one. I think that's applicable. The ability for us to fight in uh, the – I mean, we've had camouflage before, yeah? Mirage had had camouflage on it. You know, we paint the top green, the bottom blue and grey. makes them harder to see. But when you're seen – comes down to how well you can fight and JSF will not fight well and that's not classified and that's just physics. So in a perfect world if not the F-35 what do we do go back to the drawing board or is there something else that would suit the RAF do you think? Look I think the F-22 you know I think that platform is kinematically is a greater extension from the F-18 so again if you come back to that graph from the softwoods camel out to the F-18 you keep that trajectory it's actually like a J-curve on that thing with its uh, super cruise capability and thrust vector and things like that that is a natural progression kinematically Um, I'm talking platform there Um, I don't see that the JSF is an unnatural progression for the uh, Royal Australian in fact I'd say any Air Force and in the uh, the US it is not their frontline fighter because they have the F-22 for us it is our frontline fighter and that's why I don't think it's a good match for our force structure. So, mate, the uh, F-35's got bad kinematics. The F-22 would be wonderful, but uh, they say that the last fighter pilot has already been born and that the next generation of fighter aircraft will be drones. What do you think on that one? I think drones are very useful in an intelligence surveillance reconnaissance sense, and I'm very opposed to arming drones. And the reason for that is that it comes back to the fundamentals of warfare in a democracy. In a democracy, what we when we're doing an uh, operational plan, uh, it's generally Australia's centre of gravity in any campaign plan is the electorate. It's the ability for the electorate to support the campaign that we have embarked on. And once the electorate turns against the campaign, the soldiers and the government, which you know we, we saw in Vietnam, the government in a democracy is forced to withdraw. Now, by arming drones, we no longer have an ability for any any hurt to come to our people. So we no longer see the body bags coming home of Australian soldiers. And in a democracy, that's the that's the greatest check uh, for our electorate, is how much pain can our electorate absorb? How much of our national treasure of our daughters and sons can we um, give away for a specific campaign? And when we go arming drones, we can take life as quickly as pressing a button, and we never have the check and balance against the government taking life because we never have a body bag come home. And I believe the natural extension of that is for the government to employ force more readily. Now, we have a defence force in Australia, not an offence force. We have a force that's there for the defence of our country. If we're going to utilise our forces overseas uh, in, you know, expeditionary warfare, then we need that check and balance uh, on the government to employ that force overseas. And if we don't have it, I believe the 
the natural thing will be for any government to employ its force. I mean, we see it already with special forces. The reason we send special forces and not regular forces is because there's less body bags coming home when we send special forces, so therefore we'll send them. Well, guess what? When I can, when, If I have an option to, to send force without body bags, I'll just send it every day. I can do it in the shadows. There's no accountability to my electorate. Everything is nationally classified, uh, and uh, I, I can just... I can take lives at will without any check and balance from my electorate. Yeah, and that's what's happening over in in Pakistan and Afghanistan with the drones taking out on the border and the in the hills and all that and the the drone strikes. Yeah, look, you know, and the other part about that is that when we when we take life, we have we rely on intelligence to take life, and intelligence is not always correct. Yeah, and I don't think I'm saying anything untoward there. I mean, there should be enough information in the public domain now where the intelligence agency's got it wrong, um, that we need to be cautious about that. When I put boots on the ground to conduct surveillance, you know, I I have our own forces there that are are, uh, embedded in the with the local nationals. They see people up close. There's a lot less likelihood of incorrect identification. When I can sit at high altitude away from everything and convince myself of the intelligence that that's the individual, I can shoot it. And well, guess what? It wasn't uh, 20 people carrying IEDs. It was 20 people with pitchforks walking through a farm. And it's a, you know, look, I think it's I think it's coming home to roost, the over-reliance on drones. It was sold by industry as a way to save money for governments. But, you know, again, the the jury's no longer on that, out on that. It's actually cheaper to man platforms and conduct ISR well synchronised with ground forces than it is to to pay for a predator. I mean, the number of people that's required to operate a predator would water your eyes. You know, the number of people uh, required to operate a Liberty aircraft, which is the American program that operates King Airs, is, you know, four people. And a predator is just a, a logistics tail that starts in the AO and goes all the way back to America. It's it's very, very long logistics tail and very expensive to operate them. So I'm not a big fan of drones. I think that the um, wool has been pulled over the um, bosses of defence. I think they're starting to see that. I think Australian the Australian bosses are seeing it. What I'm not liking is is some of the commentary that's come out more recently about uh, you know Australia appears to be embarking on the armed drones, um, heading down that pathway. And I'd be I'd be very concerned as an Australian citizen to basically give the government a license to take life without any check and balance on the ability to do so. I've seen things like reports of drone operators who, you know, like when you're in a military environment and you're forward deployed, you're living and breathing in that forward deployed environment. You're surrounded by your um, cohorts and you're psychologically ready to be at a war zone. And then you get some counseling quite, well, usually you do on the way back, things like that. And you've come back. So you're coming back to normality, so to speak. But for a lot of the drone operators, they're sitting there, directing a maverick onto a, uh, a jeep or something like that in the, in, the, um, in the area. And then they're going home to dinner with their family and they can't talk about what they've done. And that, that, that whole thing about war versus family is causing some psychoses and problems. Yeah, look, uh, there's a tremendous book by a guy called John Nagel. It was either his master's or PhD. It's called Learning to Eat Soup with a Knife. And it's an analysis of the Malaya campaign under the Brits and the versus Vietnam under the Americans. And to summarise that book, and I'm probably not going to do it justice because it's a tremendous um, academic study, but basically the Brits were a learning organisation and they got amongst the people and they were able to improve and where they made mistakes, they continued to improve. The Americans are such a big monster that it's very hard to tailor response and, and adapt. And that was, you know, that's his fundamental fundamental difference. I think that, you know, the way we're going down the path of drones that, you know, 
I don't think that's in the interest of counterinsurgency. It's less boots on the ground. It's less integration with the local community that you're trying to win hearts and minds from. Uh, you don't win hearts and minds dropping Hellfire and LGBs yeah. in, in an AO. There's nowhere in Afghanistan you can drop an LGB without upsetting anyone. Even if you drop it in the middle of the field, someone owns that field. And with their local culture, you've offended them massively, and you know they're going to be against you. You know mm-hmm. the, the hearts and the hearts and minds campaign needs to be a lot of boots on the ground, and needs to be a a much more serious commitment. Uh, I don't believe uh, the political commitment Australia's made is really going to significantly win a, a, a counterinsurgency campaign of the of the magnitude that is Afghanistan. Yeah. The Afghanistan situation is just enormous and it's a whole new Vietnam and, you know, the tiger's by the tail and if we let go, it gets bad. If we stay there, it gets worse. So it's, you know, you've got to commit a lot in there and it's it's just really complex. So I, I don't I don't agree with, you know, my personal opinion is not to pull out. Um, yeah. I believe our personal opinion is to get serious about it and fix it up. And, you know, we have a very, very small contribution that we've been making. Um, we've made it for a long time, longer than World War Two, And... We've done it with a lot of constraints. You know, we, we, the laws of armed conflict um, is, you know, it's a big thing that we teach junior fighter pilots is how to employ the weapons legally. And the whole, you know, the irony of that, that I can take life legally and we legitimise lethal force through all of these rules, which is just so convoluted, guys, I can't believe, begin to <laughs> talk to you about it, what it takes to release a bomb or to shoot a missile. I mean, it's phenomenal. But we can very proudly say as a nation that we have not broken one law of um, conflict from the Geneva Conventions after you know, World War II. But if we go back to the philosophy behind those Geneva Conventions, they were put in place to protect civilian life. Yeah. And there's an argument to be said that if we went in at the start a lot harder and a lot more serious and probably had an initial loss of life greater than of civilian life greater uh, at the start, that we would not have what we have now, which is just a, you know, a very long campaign with a collateral damage that's, you know, it's small, but it's ongoing for a long period of time where I think you could make the case now that whilst we're being legal, um, we have protracted the engagement, ultimately defeating the entire reason on trial for having the Geneva Conventions, which is to yep. minimise the loss to civilian life because we've been there so long. We're, we're now into the second generation. Yeah, we are. I mean, look, the, AP, the P3s just came home after 10 years. But I mean, the, the thing that I'm looking at, though, is, is, as you're saying, if we go in and do it right and, and do it properly, but that's going to cost so much and no one's got the money at the moment. No one yeah, can afford I, I, I it. Dis- I disagree with that, Grant. I mean, yeah. your P3 example is a good one. The P3 is a very expensive aeroplane with four engines and 13 crew airborne, let alone the logistics tail on the ground. We've had it there for 10 years. Can I deliver the same thing with a small UAV? Can I deliver the same thing with a small man asset? Yes. In 10 years, could we have put ISR balls on the bottom of PC-9s and delivered the same capability? Yes, we could have. We have not adapted the the Air Force in 10 years of the AO, and I think that's a travesty for the guys on the ground that the Air Force has failed to adapt really very, has adapted very little from its force structure from where it was in yeah. 2001 when we went into Afghanistan what we've got today. I mean, do we have a counterinsurgency warfighting capability in the Air Force? No. Do we have a rear supply, you know, uh, caribou capability for rear echelon supply? No. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, a lot of the capabilities that we had in Vietnam for that counterinsurgency campaign, we don't have in this AO and we have not, and the Air Force has failed to adapt in the last 10 yeah. years. So, yeah, look, I, I, I hold the Air Force accountable for that, for failure to adapt their force to better support the troops. We're getting more and more cutbacks in the defence budget at the moment. I don't know how that affects the RAF, but I know it's affecting other branches of the service. Yeah, look, I, I don't think now's the time to be cutting back on defences. There's a lot of, you know, strategically important things happening globally, um, big country things, you know, big resource things, big pressures. Just got to turn the TV on of an evening and see what's going on in the Middle East. You know, that place is a cinder box. And it's not just about Syria. 
Syria has a defence pact with Iran. and The ramifications for what could happen, I would not be cutting back on defence right now. I've, I've never, I've personally never felt the geopolitical environment to be um, so unpredictable. You know, even the Cold War, uh, when I first started in the military, was predictable. You had two superpowers and they both had a whole bunch of nukes pointing at each other and that stopped anyone getting up to trouble. Um, right now, there's a lot of middle powers on the edges, wannabe superpowers and one superpower that's rapidly losing power. Um, you got you got changing changing um, power politics going on, and you know I think that's uh, a very unstable world. So yeah, I, I don't I don't think cutting back on defence. You know I know we've got unprecedented economic pressure in in Australia, but I I don't think that the defence budget, when you look at a lot of the other budgets, is a relatively small proportion. No, I get where you're coming from on the like you were saying about uh, modifying the PC nines and and uh, working different and smarter and things. I, I can see what you're saying with that, but. Uh, Mate, we've, we've gone into some pretty heavy turf and uh, something to lighten it just as we're coming out. Uh, you love hang gliding, don't you? Yes, I do. Love it. Love it. <laughs> now, that's like the ultimate in aviation, really, because you're feeling the wind and everything on you, aren't you? Yeah, no, I think it... Um I think it sort of pulls on the heartstrings of the you know the young boy that wants to be you know, flying free, not bound by gravity, and all those sort of things that little kids sort of like about birds and kites and remote controlled aeroplanes and things like that. And and hang gliding for me is you know there's there's few rules, although I would say like every aviation uh, organisation in Australia that there's more and more rules coming into aviation. When I first started hang gliding, you know you could you could go and buy a hang glider out of the trading post, find some local guy, jump off a hill, and that day you'd sign a piece of paper and you were legal. Um, That's sort of changed now and you've got helmets and streamers and proper footwear and no thongs and all the rest of it that goes on. So, yes, there's more rules there, but, um, you know, it's a very free form of flight. I've done gliding and I've done hang gliding and I I really prefer uh, hang gliding. It's uh, a lot of skill. Uh, it's it's a sort of flying where you get a lot of um, satisfaction from getting it right, and when you get it wrong, it's pretty much QED. Work it out. Um, so yeah, I, I love hang gliding. It's it's something I'd love to do. I, I, I fly balloons. I've done some gliding, um, done fixed wing things like that. I, I just really love to to give hang gliding a, a go one day. And I think there's some folks doing tandem with that. That's really the best way to get into it now is to um, is to go and find a, a tandem school and jump off a hill and and they'll let you you know they'll they'll do the takeoff and handover and you and they are relatively easy. To to fly upstairs it's the in the words of Orville Wright it would appear that alighting upon the earth is far more difficult than leaving her <laughs> <laughs> yeah well yeah. in the words of Douglas Adams the art of flying is to throw yourself at the ground and miss <laughs> yeah exactly yeah no so it's just when you come close to the ground with a hang glider, you really uh, you know you've got to be extra careful but up the upstairs stuff is very relaxing and quite easy Serge, you've done everything in the Air Force. As you said, you've been right at the top end of the elite part of the service there. Going from that world into the world of commercial aviation, how hard is it to transition from flying a fighter jet to flying an airliner? Uh, the, the the multi-crew thing takes a bit to get used to, as does the proceduralization of flying uh, or lack thereof. So what I, what I mean by that is that uh, in the fighter force, we teach a patter uh, to the students, which is learnt word perfect. Um, circuit breakers in, manual canopy, handle stowed, nuclear consent, switch enable, MC norm, height isolate normal, combine auto, IFF off, relay off, guard off. And I could go on. That's the F-18 one. I still have it in my mind after this many years. We teach the guys that word perfect. They have to be able to reproduce it every day on that F-18 course. You then go across to the um, GA or airliners, and it's, it's a lot more, you could use the word relaxed, a lot less proceduralised. And, you know, I've seen very small checks missed for big ramifications. And the idea that we operate commercial airliners or even a Cessna uh, based on how it feels or hang on, 
I'll do some left to right panel checks here and I think I've got everything. And, you know, I, I find that a very difficult environment to operate in given my background and what I instructed in the Air Force. I, and I also, having seen both, I, I think I would absolutely say that having a um, very proceduralized approach to uh, to flying is a much safer way to do it. And, and let's face it, when you've got 19-year-old guys running around in F-18s that are highly complex machines and they're doing it day in, day out, very safely with very few incidents, I think that's a testament to how good that form of piloting is. And, uh, you know, so I, when I first got to the airlines and they didn't have any procedures, you just sort of, they said, okay, we're going to fly down and do this ILS. And so what you do is you, you know, you couple the autopilot here, you capture the uh, localizer here, you're on glides, you capture the glide slope, uh, you set flap here and, you know, and that was the demonstration. And now you've just got to re- replicate that without any sort of rigid comm between the left seat and the right seat, a timeline based on altitude or a timeline based on range to select, you know, flap, select gear and things like that. It was very much how do you duty you know i found that very difficult to go to um i guess one of the great things about airlines today is they have about 150 different voice cautions to tell you when you screwed it up and they do you know and the bottom line is they do uh the f18 community doesn't have 150 cautions they have nothing so when the pilot doesn't select his gear down uh you know he'll land gear up and when he doesn't have the right flap selected or he's off localizer or whatever you know he'll crash so i think it's that different background there that um always has me approaching my flying in a, a very, um, I wouldn't call it risk adverse, it's um, outcome assurance, I think is the wording I, I like to use, but I, I, I tried to proceduralize it in the air for, uh, sorry, in the airlines. I wrote a patter. I had that on my knee pad as I went down the ILS and I, you know, I got chastised for having proceduralized something that's just meant to be sort of hairy-fairy made up between the left and right seat. So yeah, look, I'm not, I, I think um, I've flown uh, commercially with a couple of different operators and I think one of them had uh, some military guys running the training regime who had a much more proceduralized approach to it. And I, I found it personally better to translate into that world. But also I think the, you know, the safety aspects are, are far better in um, proceduralizing. It sounds very anal at the start to make a guy learn his checks word perfect and be able to replicate it day in, day out. But I tell you, when, you know, when the left engine's on fire and the gear won't come down, it's bad weather and it's not and everything, you, know, you don't want to be reaching for a checklist and making it up on the day. You want to have that thing worked out and have rehearsed it many times and it just becomes a walk in the park, which is what we do in the uh, F-18 community with the uh, emergency training there. It's interesting you're saying all this because the, I know a lot of the um, the commercial guys are talking about they have procedures, they have things that they follow. But, I mean, yeah, it sounds like it's, yeah, you're proceduralized to a point, but not as far as, as you guys have taken it in the military. Yeah, like, I mean, Boeing tell you what's required to land a a 747 you know you must have the gear down and the flaps here and the spoilers set here and the reverses here and uh the nose wheel you know it tells yeah. you that but how i get from 39,000 feet to on the runway with all of that i could select the gear down at 39,000 feet and flap full and select, you know start my descent configured or i could do it at 500 feet and hope that it's all down in time before i touch down many different <laughs> variations when you're working mixed crew it's very important to have standards yeah so that you know i've got Steve Fisher in the left seat, Serge in the right seat, and I know ahead of time when you're going to call for the gear. And so my hand's reaching for the gear lever and then you call gear down and it goes down. I know when you're going to call for flaps 10. You know, we're working as a team coherently. I found the um, airline environment very uncoherent and it was very much just on-the-job training. Do 30 days right seat next to a captain, fly with him. Okay, I know how he operates. Now you check to line, go and fly with another captain. What are you doing? What are you doing that for? No, that's not how we do it. That's how we do it. And to have those sort of think bubbles over guys' heads commercially, I think um, it's pretty unacceptable. Did transitioning across to the commercial world uh, affect your motivation in any way, at least in terms of aviation? Yeah, look, the... um, 
It did actually, yeah, that's a good question, Steve. It actually did for me. It killed my motivation for aviation when I first went across because the first operator I flew with made flying so unenjoyable and the ability to, uh, there was no spectrum in your ability of performance. So you could do a perfect arrival and landing and the reliance on uh, autopilots and computers and things like that means that, you know, it's very, very difficult to pull off a, a spectrum of how you, how's your day at work. It's pretty much just average every day. And you weren't able to say, well, what I might do is, is set up the vertical um, profile a bit better to, you know, account for tailwinds and things like that. So the ability to go hands-on, pilot a machine for a nice greaser with 400 people down the back all happy just wasn't there. You know, you're essentially yeah. a coupled approach and you just rely on a computer to thump you onto the runway and go, well, you know, we walked away. Well, not that we walked away from it. You know, we're here safely. We didn't, didn't violate any rules. Um, good day in the office. But that's very different from um, setting, uh, you know, mission-specific objectives and achieving them and going to the bar afterwards and feeling like you've done a very difficult mission and uh, achieved the mission objectives and therefore feeling a high level of job satisfaction. So I, I, found, I found that quite difficult to transition from from going on a mission by mission, very high bar set, just you know striving to jump that bar, often falling short, but learning as best you can and uh, into a very mediocre, you know, a, a capital of mediocrity is what I used to call it, where you just go to work and whatever outcome you achieve is acceptable. That, yeah. I, I found that cultural difference uh, quite difficult and consequently I didn't last long in the um, – first commercial operator I operated with, I got out of that environment pretty quickly. It wasn't a good match for my personality. And I guess it says even in the introduction to your book, I mean, I guess that plays into your motivation for writing the book in the first place. Yeah, I was, I was going through it. I was having a lobotomy as I was flying around the world watching an autopilot <laughs> for 16 hours in a dark cupboard. Yeah, um, oh, look, that was that was, that was was my initial motivation. But then I think it turned into a bit more of that. Uh, you know, I've hit on a few points tonight about some of the ways the military is going politically. Uh, I wanted to uh, have a bit of a say about, talk about that. I had a lot of, you know, I just had a lot of uh, friends and members of the public saying, hey, look, there's, there's a worthy story here other people would like to hear. You know, you need to write some of these things down. So there's other people that were motivating me to do so. So, yeah, look, I, I put it all together and you know, so far the um, feedback's been really good. Uh, both myself and the publisher are really happy at how well it's sold. We, we didn't expect it to go as well as it has. And um, I'm, I'm just really glad that uh, I'm able to share some of those stories because it is a, a very small closed community and for others who are, have not had a chance to be involved with the fighter force hopefully i've been able to tell a fairly honest uh, insider's view of it yeah no it's absolutely brilliant uh very much enjoyed reading it and uh i love the uh the final flight chapter uh your your um farewell your sayonara swan song in the uh, f-18 before you um, signed out of the raf and uh, would you that was basically sort of mano a mano in an F-18, wasn't it? Yeah, look, most most um, final flights, uh, a beat, what we call a beat up at the base where you get approval to do a low fly past and sort of say goodbye to the base. And, you know, most guys will do a, a cross-country, you know, to see a part of Australia they haven't seen or uh, they go on a nice scenic flight down the Blue Mountains or something like that. Um, my CO offered me anything I wanted, which was great, and I just asked for two clean fighters, which were the single-seaters, to take all the stores off. So we had maximum performance aircraft and Matty Hall, who's subsequently gone onto the Red Bull circuit, he just ducks the course that I'd instructed on and he was the new up-and-coming jet dock in town doing a really good job and I said, I just want to have a fight with Matty one-on-one and, and see if I can hold my own because I'd certainly been able to hold it up until then and I was only 30. So, But this is sort of a bit of an example of how you use by date comes pretty early as a, <laughs> as a knucklehead. So 
Maddie and I headed off to about 50 grand. Um, we were doing about 1.5 each as we hit the merge pretty close, so about max three closure, and then the fight started. And it wasn't long, and it was only you know five minutes later or something, we were down pretty close to the ocean there off Newcastle, both out of fuel, uh, <laughs> both still alive and both very neutral. And um, I hadn't been able to beat him. He hadn't been able to beat me, but I knew that you know it was only going to be a matter of days before this junior guy was uh, all like, walking all over me, so I knew it was time to... Time to move on while I was still on top of my game. So very sad day to, to uh, leave uh, the job. You know, it's a wonderful job. And as I said before, very high level of satisfaction. It's very, very difficult to match outside of that community. But, um, you know, I have absolutely no regrets. I left it, I left at the right time for where my career was going, which was towards the Brown Bombers. I was a, I joined to fly jets. I had um, 13 years continuous, never had a ground. I was very, very lucky. Got to fly in every squadron in Australia and had you know, did some wonderful things all around the world. So not not a moment of regret, but certainly um, if I'd stayed on, I probably, we wouldn't be having this conversation because I'd be so bitter and twisted sitting behind a, a brown bomber in Canberra, frustrated that I couldn't get F-22s in, they were sending the JSF. Well, the book is called Fighter Pilot, The Misadventures Beyond the Sound Barrier with an Australian Top Gun by Max Serge Tucker. It's a fascinating, it's an informative, and uh, I tell you what, it's a uh, highly entertaining read. Uh, it's available in uh, print, of course, and uh, also as an e-book, which is the way I got it. Max Serge Tucker, it's been a, a privilege to talk to you, mate. We really appreciate it, and we certainly hope we can do it again sometime soon. Thanks very much, guys. Great to talk to you too. Hi, I'm Matt Hall. On December 1st, I'll be sending the Matt Hall Racing Extra 300L down to Turin in Victoria with pilot Dan O'Donnell at the controls for a great day of flying action. This is your chance to experience the thrill and excitement of our adventure joy flights. The Extra is the fastest, most powerful and manoeuvrable two-seat aerobatic aircraft in Australia, which allows you to fly at up to 400 kilometres an hour, roll at 360 degrees per second, and experience up to 8G like I do in the air race. Dan is a current F-18 Hornet pilot and tailors each flight to your individual requirements, from a scenic joy flight right through to racing and air show manoeuvres. Now get in quick to secure your ride. It's the ultimate Christmas present. For more information, visit us at matthallracing.com or email us at joyflights at matthallracing.com. Plan your flight, fly your plan. With Oz Runways. Oz Runways turns any iPad or iPhone into a full-featured moving map GPS complete with all the official Australian aviation charts. Oz Runways makes the task of creating and submitting a flight plan a breathe and can be a great tool for improving situational awareness en route. Annual subscriptions start at only $74.99, so get your copy today. For your free one-month trial, search for Oz Runways EFB in the iTunes store or visit ozrunways.com. Oz Runways. Know where you're going. Want something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 Ks with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Hi, I'm Angie from Oz Air Services. Join us on Saturday, December the 1st at Touradin Airfield in Victoria for the second annual Touradin Airfield and Plane Crazy Down Under Flying and Aviation Open Day. Come along for a great day of community and fun where you can meet with the entire team, jump out of the sky with commando skydivers, fly upside down with adventure wings, try your hands at the controls and soar above the world in your own private plane, or enjoy a meal at the newly managed Wings and Fins restaurant. There'll be live music by Sarah Gardiner, Lions Club Sausage Sizzle, and even discount joy flights over Western Port Bay. 
And of course, the plain crazy guys will be doing their stuff with the mobile studio in tow. Drive down or fly in, everyone's welcome. Find out more at ozairservices.com.au. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. And welcome back, folks. Now, uh, boy, what did you think of that, Grant? Oh, mate, that was a lot of fun. Really enjoyed that. And uh, like I said before we kicked it in, uh, pretty educational, fair bit to think about, and uh, had me uh, assessing a couple of my thoughts on it. Interesting, his thoughts there on the F-35. Um, you know, I, I think that's not going to make a lot of people in the defence community happy that he's uh, <laughs> shared his thoughts there. But I just want to point out to our listeners that, uh, as we do with all our interviews, we did send a review copy to Serge to have a listen to, and uh, he's given us the okay to publish all of those comments. So, uh, yeah, you know, but, uh, you know, I appreciate the honesty. He doesn't think that the, uh, the F-35 is the right aircraft and um, you know I suppose that's what a lot of people are saying yeah there's a number out there who are very concerned about its survivability how well its uh, stealth is going to hold up against modern uh, equipment coming online with uh, China and some of the Russian gear that's coming down into this area and uh, also just how well it's going to extend out and its kinematics are the big part that was that was a big area surge was concerned about and uh, the other thing I picked up on there was Serge's um, interesting thoughts on the Navy. Now, um, you know, don't hate us, any of our Navy friends. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that does come through in the book quite well, doesn't it? Yeah, now, of course, um, you know, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's a very honest account there. And uh, as he said, um, everybody's got their strengths. I think it's more the point that uh, Serge didn't have a lot of interaction with the Navy, as he said there. But, you know, some of the comments there, I thought, gee whiz, anybody that has anything to do with the Navy here might not like that too much. But uh, like we said at the front, it was going to be a little bit controversial. <laughs> well, it's a good chance for uh, some of the Navy guys to get in touch and come on the show and uh, have a chat with us about it. Now, uh, almost unintentionally, actually, with that interview, we sort of uh, moved away from the book. There's a lot of things that were discussed there. There in that interview that aren't talked about in the book, but uh, he does uh, touch a lot on his love of hang gliding and uh, talks about some really interesting adventures that he has there, um, self-launching there off the beaches, I think up in northern Australia somewhere, or it might have been over in the west, I'm not sure. Uh, some really interesting stuff there and uh, talks about getting some amazing altitude in a hang glider and that's, you'd think, poles apart from flying a jet fighter, but uh, there's there's some fantastic stories there about his exploits uh, in the Hornet. He was in 75 Squadron, the Elite Squadron, of course, 77 Squadron as well, uh, and he also talks about his time, uh, not only as a fighter combat instructor, but actually talking about the process to become one, which I found quite fascinating. Yeah, indeed, mate. It was a very interesting look into what goes into making an F-18 pilot and also then into making a combat instructor. And yeah, you got to wonder the young guys with a lot of energy, a lot of testosterone and some very expensive and powerful equipment to uh, go and throw around the sky. Uh, yeah, no surprise they get up to a bit of mischief when they're not flying. Yeah, it's funny that he was talking about the, the culture there among fighter pilots and perhaps uh, how it grinds a bit with uh, other echelons of the uh, pilot community within the Defence Force and that'd be interesting because uh, as anybody knows who's listened to this show for a long time, had I ever been smart enough to become an Air Force pilot, I would have loved nothing better than to be a Hercules pilot. <laughs> yes, that big transport aircraft that you love so much, but it, it handles pretty well, it's pretty sprightly. Yeah, I, I hope I didn't mention that to Serge, did I? I might have cut that bit out. <laughs> well, it's a bit like you can have your F-18, I want the C-130. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there was a bit of a choke on his beer at that moment. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, can, I could settle for a C-17. I mean, that doesn't have a yoke. Yeah. I mean, you know. That's, that's... No, it's got a stick. It's got a hood. It's got a, a lot of good stuff. Yeah, there you go. Well, I'll settle for that, Serge, so don't hate me, mate. Mate, I just settled to get up, up close and personal with any bit of aviation equipment. You know me. And now the other thing that I found really interesting and uh, doing a bit of uh, background research on Serge uh, before and after the interview, uh, I've talked to uh, quite a few people within the defence 
community that uh, are in the know and um, more than one person actually rated Surge as among the top two or three uh, Hornet pilots that uh, this country has ever produced and uh, Grant I only mention that because not only have we spoken to Surge but uh, if you put him in the top three we've also spoken to the other two on this show. <laughs> and I think I can name names on that one can I? Yeah you probably can but we won't. This is Surge's, uh, this is Surge's episode and we'll just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah no uh, those names do get a mention in the book. Um, if you if you know what you're looking for, you'll find them quite easily, actually. Well, uh, we really want to thank Mac Serge Tucker for uh, spending so much time with us. Uh, that interview went probably a bit longer than uh, perhaps any of us thought it would go. Uh, we certainly do appreciate his time. It was recorded uh, on a busy afternoon during the week, which is rare for us, actually. So uh, mm. we really do appreciate it. And uh, you can find his book, uh, once again, Fighter Pilot, Misadventures Beyond the Sand Barrier with an Australian Top Gun. I can't recommend this, uh, this book enough, folks. Get out there, get yourself a copy. Uh, you can find it in most bookshops. I've seen it in Airport bookshops and uh, plenty of other ones around the city here. Another really great place to find it is on uh, Amazon.com and uh, as I said in the interview there I've, uh, Grant's got a paperback copy and uh, I've got a uh, an electronic copy that I read on my Kindle. A fantastic read uh, you won't be able to put it down, trust me, if you're into aviation and of course you would be if you listen to this show, uh, this is a must. Definitely mate, it's uh, got pride of place up there on my bookcase at the moment next to a number of my flying uh, books and yeah, really enjoyed it. And uh, in line with the book, Surge has also got a Facebook page presence uh, which you'll find under the uh, same title as the book so uh, make sure you get on there onto uh, Facebook if you're a uh, Facebook follower and uh, get on there and tell Serge uh, how much you like the book. Well that wraps up this very special edition of Playing Crazy Down Under. Thanks very much for listening folks and as always I hope you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed recording it. We'll be back very soon with another episode but uh, I tell you what Grant, I reckon if you were flying an FA-18 Hornet around uh, Northern Australia for 75 Squadron you'd probably be thinking this. It's what's down under that counts folks. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under, hosted by Grant McCarran and Steve Fisher. You can follow us on Twitter, at PCDU. And for more information about the team, feedback, storylines you'd like us to follow, and any advertising inquiries, go to our website, planecrazydownunder.com. Plane Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production. Kind folks at the Department of the Bleeding Obvious have asked us to make this statement. The views and opinions we present in this podcast are ours and do not necessarily represent those of groups we work with or are associated with, although we think they probably should. We certainly don't claim to be experts, we're just opinionated enthusiasts who are willing to comment publicly on the world around us. This show is intended as entertainment and any education that may occur is purely coincidental. As with anything in life, it is your responsibility to determine what does or does not work in your situation and to seek out suitable guidance and or instruction. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons non-commercial by attribution license. For more details on this license and our contact details, please visit our website at www.playingcrazydownunder.com. Thanks, folks. I said to Matt Hall once, I said, have you ever been up in an F-111? He said, oh, yes, I've been up in a B-111. And, yeah. I, and, I, and I, I think your uh, description of it was fairly similar. <laughs> <laughs> I hope you haven't listened to our F-111 episode then. <laughs> no, no, it's all right, it's all right. I'll hold nothing against you guys. I just will hold it all against that pig guy. You can Don't hold it against me, mate. I drive trains for a living, so it's, you know. <laughs> Oh, do you? Now that you've got these uh, these head helmet mounted queuing systems, they could be looking over to the wrong side, scratching their nose, and take out the wingman. I mean, they are F one eleven guys. I doubt they're looking the way they're going. <laughs> they got a, they got a navigator next to them. They got to look at or behind them. Now that must yeah. really screw with their minds. They can't look across and. Have to- <laughs>
I reckon if you were flying an FA-18 Hornet around uh, Northern Australia for 75 Squadron, you'd probably be thinking this. It's what's down under that counts, folks. Actually, I think I'd be thinking a lot of other things. <laughs> like, woohoo! <laughs> I'd be thinking, where's my sick bag? Oh, you big wuss. You know what I'd be thinking? I'd be thinking, why did I put in for jets when I could have been a Hercules pilot? Oh, my God. Yeah, okay. You go get the Herc <laughs> flight. I'm angling for the F-18 ride. Oh, God. Surgeon's never going to speak to me again. <laughs>